Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mary Ashen. Thank you for spending some time with us today. One brief housekeeping note, check out our video interview series, Conversations with B'nai B'rith on Facebook and YouTube. You'll find discussions with historians, journalists, Middle East experts, even an astronaut and an NFL player. And watch our latest content by subscribing to the B'nai B'rith YouTube channel and liking us on Facebook at Benebrith International. Well, by the end of World War II, Germany had been defeated by the Allies and its Jewish community so decimated that a cultural revival seemed unthinkable. But as surviving Jews returned from hiding, camps, and exile, so did their music. Here to guide us through the rebirth of German Jewish music after the Holocaust is Professor Tina Fruhoff, musicologist and author of the recently published Transcending Dystopia, Music, Mobility, and the German Jewish Community, 1945-1989. Her new book is the first book-length study on Jewish music in post-war Germany and brings together insights from musicology, Jewish studies, German studies, and Cold War studies. In our conversation, Professor Fruhoff will talk about her new book and her discoveries about the cultural transformation of the Jewish community in Germany after the Holocaust. An award-winning music historian, Professor Fruhoff will also speak about how the arrival of Jewish immigrants during the 20th century impacted the American musical scene. Professor Fruhoff currently teaches at Columbia University and serves on the doctoral faculty of the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. She's published several books and contributed numerous book chapters and encyclopedia entries on German Jewish music culture. Professor Fruhoff, thanks for being here. We're so pleased that you can join us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here and to share my insights into what has been a rather neglected and overlooked topic, the music of Jews in Germany after 1945. Well, before we delve into your new book, uh, Transcending Dystopia, Music, Mobility, and the Jewish Community in Germany, 1945-1989, let's talk about why 2021 is such an important year for Jewish life in Germany. Now, this year marks 1,700 years of Jewish presence in Germany. Uh, given the devastation of the Holocaust and all of the hardships and tragedy that Jews have endured in the Germanic world, what do you make of this achievement? Well, the, the, the story, the history of Jews in Germany is, is a story of survival, of resilience, and of embracing music as an agent in order to get through really hard times. And, and if you look at all these years that this um, anniversary this year encompasses, from uh, 321 to today, then music was always a very, very important part of that story of the history of the resilience and of the various revivals Jewish presence on German soil has had. Now, in your new book, uh, you share documents from previously unpublished archives and private collections about Jewish music. How did you become interested in uh, the revival of Jewish musical activity that did develop in post-war Germany, and how did you discover the primary source documents that helped you paint a much more detailed picture? Well, I had worked um, much of my time before on German Jewish music history. I'd written a book specifically about the reform movement, 
which emerged out of Germany and specifically the role of the organ therein, but also the choir, congregational singing, the professionalization of the cantorial office and so on. That had been my research objective for many, many years. And I've widely published on this articles and um, several books. So for me, it was actually not discovering something new, but rather continuing a journey that I had begun quite early in my life, covering the Jewish history um, in music uh, on German soil. And um, so 1945 is a very strong year. It's a year after a severe rupture in history. But for me, it was a continuation of the work that has always accompanied my, my adult and scholarly life. You ask about the sources that I discovered. And um, I, uh, I discovered many, many collections. And I, I just want to go quickly into two areas that are, I think, very interesting. Um, so one area um, really relates to a part in my book where I talk about very seminal personalities that resurrected the communities, that organized concerts, that um, also sang um, and uh, conducted services. And there was one name in particular that I thought was really fascinating, a man by the name of Adolf Schwersens. And of course, when one reads such a name, one stumbles immediately over this, uh, this the first name in, in particular. Um, he was also somebody who instigated a Weimar Jewish um, custom that um, was interrupted by the Nazis, and that is that of Jewish broadcasts, just as we have it today in the form of a podcast. Uh, so he started these and introduced music as a very important component. And I found out a lot of interesting things about this man. He was a radio singer. He was very well versed in, uh, in music and had a lot of different kind of educational backgrounds. And then in 1947, there was a dearth nothing. I thought he might have died, but I didn't find a death record. I thought he might have immigrated. I didn't find an immigration record. And I searched and searched for several years and absolutely nothing. And this was a really important man, a man who started concerts in synagogues in Berlin in 1946, who sang in service, who led service, who established uh, one of the communities in post-war Berlin. And still nothing. It's, it's very disappointing for any researcher, any scholar, if one kind of reaches this gap and um, this vacuum. So uh, I let time go by and focused on other personalities that I wanted to learn more about and spent a lot of my time in archives. And one day uh, in an archive of um, another personality in Berlin, I read through letters and um, a photo fell out. And I thought, wow. This person looks totally familiar. I know him. Um, and then I realized it is said Adolf Schwersens. However, a different name was given in the letter. And then I realized that he had changed his name for obvious reasons, of course, with this name. Um, but also he had changed his last name because he indeed immigrated to the United States, wanted to kind of reinvent his persona. And with that came a name change. So I didn't let things end just then and there. Um, I tried to find his family. Uh, he had a daughter and um, fortunately I could locate the daughter. The moment I did, I received note that she had died. Another hurdle. 
Um, after um, a year of, of grieving, I approached the family again. They invited me to Boston and I spent uh, some time in Boston uh, realizing that uh, Adolf Schwersens had taken from Berlin Torah scrolls, prayer books, sheet music, anything that you can imagine. It was a treasure trove. It lay all in the attic. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. I have a whole piece of history here in this attic just outside of Boston. It was just a dream come true. I scanned what I could in order to kind of have a full picture of his life and then present it in my book. And after I was uh, kind of done doing all this, I thought, you know, this can't stay in the attic. I need to do something about this. This material must be accessible. And so I brokered um, a contact to the Leo Beck Institute in New York. And um, as of a few years ago, uh, this collection is now um, at the Leo Beck Institute and can be accessed by all kinds of scholars. So this is a very long description of a path. I could actually speak about many similar paths about finding people who have survived the camps and left and took materials with them primarily to the United States. Yeah. Let, let's just back up a, a second because it's a, a, which it's a fascinating story and, and leads to my question. Um, in 1933, uh, there were over 500,000 Jews in Germany. Um, in 1950, so five years after the war, there were about 37,000. Many of them were Polish Jews who had made their way to the displaced persons camp. So in terms of, of German Jews per se, there really were, were very, very few. So the, the Jewish population, of course, there and around Europe had been brutalized and the vast majority murdered. What was it like for a German Jew during this time to, to what motivated them uh, to um, go back? to their country in which they had endured such, such hatred and, and brutality. Well, those who left did not endure, um, not all of them endured that brutality. So there was um, a, a huge chunk that left in 1933 very early on foreseeing what um, atrocities would, would be coming for the Jewish population uh, of Germany. So um, many of them who returned, returned to a Germany that was not the Germany of 1938. Um, so they uh, really returned to what they still experienced or thought of as Weimar Germany, the rich Germany that actually offered Jews um, all kinds of uh, possibilities in the arts and beyond. Um, and so uh, this return um, was a different return. But then there were also those who turned. They did not return, but they turned to Germany in 1945. Think of uh, being in Eastern Europe, having lost your home, being surrounded by Polish Jews or uh, by, 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 by Polish people, I'm sorry. Um, and um, you don't feel safe, where do you go? And it seems like an irony of history to go of all places to occupy Germany, but occupied is here the key word. Germany was in the hands of four powers. Each of them took the Jewish question very seriously and established displaced person camps in order to help Jews to find themselves after 1945. So depending on which period we are talking about, we are talking about different numbers between 1945 and not 1948, for example, speaking of numbers, we uh, come to very different kind of um, counts. We come to counts of a quarter million who passed through German 
um, cities in order to relocate um, to the United States or then in 1948 to the just founded state of Israel. So um, it, it was a very heterogeneous situation depending on where people were coming from, if they had left before, when they had left. Uh, it's, it's complex. So was there a need for, um, for those who were involved in music, composing or, or playing music, presenting music, publishing music? Was there a need for the introduction of, of new musical styles or, or were these survivors uh, reliant on the traditions of, of German Jewish music, as you said, that, that may have existed in the, in the Weimar Republic? It was a little bit of both. Um, the majority wanted to really uh, hang on to what they knew to kind of see continuity. And there was a lot of continuity until about 1949. And then in East Germany, even more continuity really pervaded East Germany, much more than West Germany with the division of the states um, because of the demographics of, of Jews who settled in each of the two Germanys. Um, so then there was, of course, um, a different crowd that wanted to have perhaps not new musical styles, but new musical pieces. And uh, we can see this, for example, in Yiddish theater. Yiddish theater, uh, which was performed in displaced person camps like Bergen-Belsen, after it was liberated, it became a displaced person camp. And Yiddish theater performances were vital to establish a sense of Jewishness and identity. And uh, for some in the Yiddish theater world, it was very important to play the classics on stage, but for others, it was really important to digest what had happened in the camps and to put in new pieces that actually reflect on what have happened. So this is not so much about music, Jewish music, Yiddish theater is musical theater. This is not so much about the music itself, but rather what it means and the text that it, it is based on. And what about liturgical music? There is a, there is a great Jewish liturgical music tradition in Germany, some of it making its way into uh, the liturgy of, of synagogues and synagogue life here in, in this country. Um, so uh, how, how do you think it broke down in terms of those who were engaged in, in music and musical culture um, between those who were involved in secular music and those in liturgical? Well, in liturgical music, of course, the course was to preserve um, the German Jewish tradition with names like Louis Lewandowski, but also uh, when we think of uh, reform Judaism, which had been so strong in, in pre-war Germany with classics like pieces by Georg Friedrich Händel, for example, uh, which were performed during service. So that was really at the heart initially, but again, you know, the, the musical developments are not static. They responded to time and place and as a place, East Germany preserved traditions much, much more than West Germany. Well, in West Germany, there was a great flux. Um, if you look at the foundation of West Germany in 1949 and what happened in the Eastern Bloc, one sees a lot of influx of Hungarian Jews, of Israeli Jews, of remigrants from Israel because Israel was a tough place to settle in. Um, and, and with that, actually, musical styles changed inside the synagogue, but also in social life. Social, in, in social life, think of a Hanukkah celebration. Um, Hanukkah celebrations, especially I'm thinking of, of a community like Hamburg or Frankfurt. It was not just alone about let's hold on to the past, but also 
bring in something that actually is meaningful at this present point in history. And that was Israeli music that was extremely important. So who are some of the musicians who impacted and, and furthered the uh, reconstitution of musical life in Germany? One I mentioned, Adolf Schwersens, I like to mention him again because he's really forgotten and he was so pivotal in, in these two years that he worked out of Berlin. Um, one other really important person to name is um, Estrongo Nachama, who had a very long legacy. He was uh, the cantor, later the Oberkantor at Pestalozzi Straße Synagogue in Berlin. He was um, a Greek-born Jew who survived Auschwitz and wanted to make Berlin his way station and then became enthralled with the German Jewish tradition and was taught in the same by uh, the previous cantors who had survived in underground hiding or who actually returned from camps like Theresien. Um, and he was certainly seminal. He was seminal across borders too, because he was Greek born. He distributed his, his musical knowledge, his repertoire and his amazingly beautiful voice uh, across borders. He traveled to East Germany, he traveled to West Germany. He could actually very well um, collaborate with non-Jewish choirs such as church choirs and uh, really uh, reached out to Germany at large. He was kind of the glue for a divided Germany during the Cold War period. And that's through singing Louis Lewandowski. I mentioned some classical repertoires. He had kind of a quite wide spectrum for somebody who was musically self-trained or not conservatory trained. And how much did music contribute to the broader cultural scene uh, for, for Jews in Germany? I just say parenthetically, of course, Germany to B'nai B'rith, uh, in terms of our international family, um, played a very important role. I mean, in, in 1933, on the eve of Hitler coming to power, uh, there were more than 100 branches of B'nai B'rith in Germany, hardly a, a town or a city with any Jewish population that didn't have a branch. And of course, in many cities, um, Berlin at that time had about 160,000 Jews, very large a Jewish community. And B'nai B'rith played a very important role in the, in the cultural life of the Jewish community uh, in Germany. So how much, uh, we had music, we had literature, I mean, other things, uh, theater, um, other things that go into making a, a cultural whole, uh, the, the entirety of, of culture. So how much of a part did music play in this? A hugely important part, because music spoke to their soul. It reflected their identity, who they were. And uh, it actually um, also was a sense of normality on the one hand, and then also a tool to digest the trauma. Um, if you think of actually music as a tool or as a as kind of an entity that can help in, in alleviating traumatic experiences, music was used as such in the post-war period quite strongly. There were so-called liberation concerts, concerts that were specifically put on in order to celebrate survival. Jews didn't want to see themselves as victims, but as survivors and music is an expression of that. Here we are, we can be heard, not just to our words, but to something that aesthetically has been so important to the Jewish community, not just in the synagogue, but also in mainstream life ever since the Haskalah and the Jewish emancipation in the 19th century. Well, you know, when we think of, of the horrific losses 
uh, of the, the Jews in Germany and Europe. And we talk about those who re were reconstructing this, this life afterwards. Uh, one can only pause to think, and I do this many times, and I'm sure you do as well, to think how many great um, musical uh, geniuses and minds, uh, composers, uh, uh, musicians, uh, that there would have been and uh, had there been no uh, Holocaust. I think of the tremendous losses, not only, of course, in the field of music, but in many other fields as well. And uh, do you find that in, in writing about this, um, that in Germany itself, I'm not talking about in the Jewish community only, but that in Germany itself, there is great interest in the, the kind of information that you have gathered? I do think that, and uh, I think that there is general interest and genuine interest uh, in Jewish music that goes beyond the shores or the boundaries of the Jewish community. There are two chairs for Jewish music, one in Weimar and Hanover, and uh, there are institutes uh, of uh, fostering Jewish musical performances, not for the Jewish community, but for the mainstream. There are choirs specifically devoted to performing Jewish music in all its breadth. And one of the choirs I want to mention because it is quite spectacular, it's the Leipziger Synagogal Chor, a choir of non-Jews who operated under socialist, um, the socialist regime in the GDR. And so there has been a tremendous interest in that. And um, this interest doesn't come from anywhere. And here I'm speaking not about the Jewish community, but about the non-Jews in Germany. There was a tremendous amount of re-education happening right in the years after 1945, instigated by America in order to really get Germany on a different path, to get the average German on a different path. And so General McClure was involved in this. There were concerts for this. Yehudi Menuhin played in these concerts. So there was really uh, an understanding that music is an important part in re-educating German, Germans about Jewishness and uh, about um, their um, silent passive and yet still kind of complicity in the Holocaust. Uh, this, this kind of reintegration we can see, by the way, very, very easily on the concert programs, which after 1945 always included a piece of Mendelssohn, who was banned under the Nazis. Well, let's uh, turn to another book that you wrote, uh, Experiencing Jewish Music in America, published in 2018. And in it, you detail myriad sacred and secular traditions emanating from all branches of Judaism during the last three centuries. And let's focus on the music that we identify with the immigrant experience in the early 20th century and its revival and its renewed appreciation uh, here and now. Uh, while writing and researching that book, uh, cataloging so many styles and, and genres, uh, how did you arrive at a definition of American Jewish music? Well, this was really hard. And looking at my text very closely, I didn't quite try to arrive at a definition because I realized throughout the 20 years of my work that um, Jewish music needs to be redefined, defined and redefined over and over again as it kind of grows throughout history. Think of the following. You mentioned the arrival of immigrants um, specifically in the early 20th century. These were mainly Eastern European Jews who arrived at that time fleeing um, Russia and pogroms. 
they performed klezmer they performed on the yiddish stage um if we now go forward 70 years further and we actually look at what yiddish means today in new york for example where one has a yiddish festival every December happening um, with a lot of young people participating, you see a fusion of Yiddish styles with punk and rock and other styles. A definition of Jewish music thus in the early 20th century would be a very different definition for those styles that emerged later on as the Jewish population continued to kind of bring in new styles, bring in new performances and kind of let Jewish music evolve as a facet that helps us to explain a phenomenon of culture and participation. Well, talk to us a bit about uh, the Jewish community of New York uh, circa 1910 or so. My, my parents were immigrants. They were brought here as children uh, to the United States, and they arrived at Ellis Island. When the Jews came to Ellis Island, um, how did the importance of their musical traditions carry over in their new lives in America? And you've talked about the Yiddish stage, and you've talked about klezmer music. Um, it must have evolved through their exposure to new influences. And let's talk about the Yiddish stage for just a moment. Uh, there were really some uh, monumental figures in that period of the Yiddish theater, which really blossomed around that time, early years of the 20th century, right through, unfortunately, the Holocaust. It did survive after, of course, but the number of Yiddish-speaking Jews either through assimilation here in the United States or number who were killed in Europe, really put the brakes on, on so much of that lovely Yiddish culture. But there were figures like Maurice Schwartz and David Kessler and Jacob Adler, but one really stands out and that was Boris Tomaszewski. What would Tomaszewski, who started out singing in a, in a choir <laughs> in a synagogue, in a small synagogue in Europe, um, what, would someone like that bring to Jewish music in America? Well, he brought a lot to America. Tomaszewski came in 1881. He was 15 years old. And um, what he actually didn't really have is a kind of rock solid profession. He did little jobs. But what he really had was a voice and um, musical knowledge through, as you mentioned, singing in a choir. And uh, that equipped him well enough to actually join the Yiddish stage and the Yiddish theater. And so he was actually kind of um, instrumental, an instrumental figure in, in one of the early um, productions, the Kishev Macharin, for example, uh, also known as uh, the Zoiberin, um, the, the kind of um, magic woman. And uh, he participated in this show on the Lower East Side, um, barely 15 years old. And that set off a tremendous path in which he influenced Yiddish theater, not only for New York or the Lower East Side, but also for America at large. He traveled to Detroit, to Baltimore, to a lot of different cities, um, distributed with his troupe. Um, Yiddish theater. So he was much more than just uh, an actor or a singer. Um, he was an impresario. And um, as that, he was so instrumental for the dissemination of Yiddish theater throughout America. So his, his influence cannot be underestimated. Well, the numerous uh, Second Avenue Yiddish theaters uh, are associated with the creativity of composers uh, whose music uh, led to new Jewish musical expressions. And I'm thinking of, of people like Irving Berlin or George Gershwin, who must have in, in their youth 
um, either been exposed to or attended these uh, shows and programs at the Yiddish theaters uh, in New York City. And of course, uh, someone like, like Gershwin, influenced also by elements of jazz um, and, and ultimately created his, his own style. So how, how did it morph from the klezmer and what was going on in the Yiddish stage with the, with the musical uh, performances into Tin Pan Alley and to other expressions of either Jewish music or music created by Jews for the broader population? It's so interesting that you bring in George Gershwin because he can tell us a lot, his trajectory can tell us a lot about really the, the uh, evolution of Jewish music from the Lower East Side through Tin Pan Alley, through Broadway, but at the same time and in parallel also at the second largest enclave of uh, Jews in the world, which is Harlem. Um, and nobody talks really about that, but back to, to um, Gershwin. So um, he was born uh, Jacob Gershwitz and uh, he grew up really on the um, Lower East Side um, and grew up surrounded by Yiddish theater. And it's known that he frequented the local Yiddish theaters with his um, brother Ira. And uh, that was really something that uh, they grew up with almost, we can say with the mother milk. Um, and that kind of upbringing processes took place that uh, a lot of Jews experienced and that is a process of acculturation. Uh, at that time, and uh, we talk here about uh, the early 20th century, a very kind of different world than Tomaszewski faced. Um, in the early 20th century, the wish was really um, acculturation, becoming an American. This becoming an American is eternalized in the jazz singer, for example, also uh, a kind of film that's close to Tin Pan Alley. Tin, pa Tin Pan Alley, an essentially Jewish industry, um, Jewish because everybody involved really had ties to the Lower East Side and was, was born Jewish, really allowed Jews who wanted to acculturate into America to actually kind of take their heritage and turn it into something new by writing songs that appealed to American mainstream. And uh, Gershwin is a, um, a very good example for that. Irving Berlin, an even better example for this, and um, Cole Porter, a very bad example because Cole Porter was not Jewish. Um, but still, people said he would write Jewish songs because there was a sensibility that was a remnant, really, of the Yiddish theater. Kind of, you know, um, the sensibility of the Neshama, the, the kind of soul that, that was um, being imbued in these Tin Penali songs. The 19th century uh, uh, into the 20th century into halfway into the 20th century. Also was a period of uh, the great cantors, the great cantorial concerts. Uh, they made recordings, they made public appearances. And that was going on also at the same time as Tin Pan Alley and the Yiddish theater. Can you comment uh, about that? Kind of the popularization, if you will, of liturgical music. Yeah, this popularization, uh, people who are really into cantorial music, and even those who are not that much into cantorial music, might think of the great, greats like Jossele Rosenblatt, who is, I think, one of the biggest names. So, so what happened in the early 20th century? Why did such a golden age happen then and not 100 years earlier? It was the radio. It was really an important means in distribute vocal music 
but also instrumental music because we have early klezmer recordings from the same time to the wider masses. And uh, I think that um, one doesn't have to be Jewish necessarily to appreciate a voice like that of um, Josele Rosenblatt. If you hear his rendition of Tal, if you hear his um, recording uh, that he sang um, related to the um, tragedy of the Titanic, uh, you can really kind of enjoy the greatness of the voice, even if you do not understand Hebrew or Yiddish. It's just, just a fantastic voice, so accessible. If you can just turn on the radio and sit there and bring this voice into your living room. So actually, uh, my, my uh, assertion is that it is through the radio that cantorial music uh, achieved this tremendous attention from America at large in the early 20th century. I think also there was a great deal of pride in in hearing this music on a on a phonograph record or in going to a concert. It, it was it was religious, uh, but at the same time, it also was to hear the, the great voice. And of course, Rosenblatt was a, a giant and there were others also at that time. If we can, let's uh, fast forward uh, to today. We mentioned the Yiddish stage. I attended uh, a performance of Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish last year, just before the pandemic hit, I think we're, we're perhaps the year before. Uh, and there were several hundred performances uh, of, of, that, of that show. So there you have uh, the music of Harnack and Bach, two American Jewish composers, but a real Jewish story, a, a real history, and tunes that you could, you could walk out of the theater uh, humming and singing and sing. We, we think of them all the time. What do you think about that new trend? You talked about how there's some fusion with Yiddish in, in other places. Where is the future for, for this kind of music? Let me first go back for a moment to Fiddler on the Roof. It's a fascinating piece. If you think of their creators, their creators actually were inspired um, by uh, Eastern European um, forms of, of uh, musical uh, expression, such as, for example, the Hasidic Nigun that kind of made its appearance in one or the other way in the musical. So um, the Fiddler is uh, actually, um, as it's already said in the title, also kind of puts on, this, uh, on the spot really the klezmer musician who becomes the, the icon really for balancing um, tradition and um, kind of new trends. So it, it's, it's quite an interesting musical and it really juggles so many things that um, Jewish, the Jewish community can relate to, but also America at large because quint quintessentially it is a Broadway musical. It is, it is not related to the Yiddish uh, theater world. Um, bringing it then back into Yiddish, had a totally interesting effect. I, I was fascinated by it. As you, I attended not once, but twice and a third time. And um, I, I took my students actually from Columbia University because I think they must see it and they were absolutely eager. This was such an interesting production. I'm so glad that you uh, bring this back because it was just heartwarming. It was simple. It was not kitschy. It was very um, kind of sober, but it had an undeniable warmth. And for me, this warmth came actually first from the language, the translation into Yiddish, which kind of brings a totally different sound into the music and into the whole expression of, of a production. But then also the actors who basically lived it. I'm thinking of uh, the music director, 
um, Sizzle, who I, uh, I'm very familiar and friendly with, and uh, how he kind of shows up on stage and he is not acting or playing, he is it. He is the, he's the clarinetist who embodies the show at that very moment as his reality. This made the show absolutely amazing. Um, it, it really educated people, I think, about Yiddish in a very different way, not in, in an academic way, but in an emotional way. Yiddish has a sound that speaks to the heart. It is warm, it is comforting. Um, it kind of really doesn't, didn't feel folksy or um, kind of removed in any way, but it really felt authentic. And I don't like to use this term authentic a lot because it's very flawed, but it felt just right. And um, as such, actually, the show re really represents a turn that we are seeing. Um, I'm not sure if any of my colleagues have used um, the phrase of the Yiddish turn. We have seen so many terms in the academy, the spatial turn and other turns. But really, in, in the Jewish musical world, there has been the turn towards the Yiddish. The younger generation is enthralled by Yiddish and wants to live it, relive it, reinvent it, shape it in different ways. I think it's, it's really um, an expression uh, for many um, who um, do no longer go to the synagogue, who don't identify as religious Jews, but feel culturally Jewish and it connects them. Well, there's no question. I, I think that in a way, uh, we all feel a certain ownership of, of this musical. Uh, and because it's a combination, and also it crosses generations. I mean, it's based on the Sholem Aleichem stories, and Joseph Stein wrote the book, and uh, Sheldon Harnack and, uh, and Jerry Bach wrote the music, um, and then there was the motion picture, it was directed by Norman Jewison. So all of that is out there over generations. And then to be brought back, um, just hearing, yes, hearing the Yiddish, not even being distracted by, by the English, just even if you, if you, you didn't, if you don't know Yiddish, and most of the people going to those performances of the latest production uh, did not uh, speak Yiddish, but uh, even notwithstanding the fact that the translations were up on a screen. But there is a certain uh, a connection, as you've said, a certain ownership in a way of, of our history and our traditions and our music uh, that really uh, makes it uh, really very special. And uh, we uh, hope for its long life on into many, many years ahead. Well, the book is Transcending Dystopia, Music, Mobility, and the Jewish Community in Germany, 1945-1989, by Dr. Tina Fruhoff, and is available online wherever you purchase books. Dr. Fruhoff, thank you so much for being with us today and for your groundbreaking research on Jewish music in post-war Germany. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. It was an honor. And um, be well. Well, if you're looking for more of our diverse content, visit our website, benebrith.org, to listen to all of our conversations, podcasts, and live interviews. Huge thanks again to author Dr. Tina Fruhoff for joining me, and thank you for listening in. If you like what you've heard, make sure you never miss an episode by tapping the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Dan Mary Ashen. Talk to you soon again. Take care, everyone.